0: Uh, I told believe about my internship. There was an internship in the Ford White House and It tells you something about Gerald ford i 'm the guy who killed his intern program, and here I am thirty plus years later, um, having cherished a relationship uh, with he and his family um, he didn 't hold a grudge. he had every reason to, but um, it was a strange program. It was um, it, it preceded the president by all. First of all, it, but like everything in Washington, it was who you knew. I mean, I knew someone. Don't ever guess who it was. I was chairman of the College Republicans in Massachusetts, and the person who recommended me for the program was Carl Rove, um, <laughs> who was the chairman of the College of the National College Republicans, and it was run by a perfectly charming young lady uh, who was the daughter of Dick uh, Allison and uh, or Dick Powell and June Allison, and and she had been an original. Mouseketeer. So every afternoon at 4 o'clock, all of the interns were summoned to her office to watch reruns of the Mickey Mouse Club. <coughs> well, you know, that was just too good uh, to, to miss, you know? So anyway, Sally Quinn, who had just come off a brief, disastrous television career uh, in the morning news, she said that I was the only person in America who wrote her a fan letter. Uh, I was then a Harvard, undergraduate at Harvard. So Sally uh, said, um, I want to uh, come and see you and interview you for a piece I'm writing about your thesis advisor at Harvard named Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, so anyway, I said, sure. So we went to lunch in the cafeteria of the EOB, and I was so naive. And of course, everyone thought, oh my God, he's leaking information to Sally Quinn. Well, I didn't have any information worth leaking to anyone. You know, <laughs> I was uh, working as an intern. But anyway... Uh, Sally said, You know, you have wonderful stories. You come up, and I talk to the editor. And anyway, one thing led to another. And that was the beginning of my literary career. So I suppose I owe that to the Ford White House uh, as well. But in any anyway, event, I want to say just one word about um, our figurative host this evening, if not our literal host, um, and that's Ralph Hollenstein Because I think it is absolutely amazing. I do a lot of travel, and I have visited a few presidential centers in my time. It is, it is nothing short of remarkable what the Hohenstein Center has accomplished in a very short period of time, the level of programming that it brings to this community and to this state. It is a jewel in the crown of Michigan, and, um, and it exists uh, because of Ralph Hohenstein's generosity. At the start of the 1974 holiday season, the President of the United States greeted visitors to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue by comparing himself to the official Christmas tree, a great ornamental spruce that dominated the Blue Room. We're both from Michigan, said Gerald Ford, and neither one of us expected to spend Christmas in the White House. (laughs) How Midwestern. It should have come as no surprise that one of uh, President Ford's earliest actions uh, was to hang portraits of Abraham Lincoln and Dwight Eisenhower in the White House Cabinet Room. Few observers, however, would have expected him to round out the gallery of heroes with the likeness of Harry Truman. Yet that is exactly what he did. Their politics and personalities might differ, but all three men bore the distinctive stamp of the Middle West. Places shape people, The Midwest, more than most. Over the years, self-proclaimed sophisticates on both coasts have conjured up a culturally parched landscape of white picket fences and a small-town conformity swallowed like pills. We know better. It is not conformity that is the hallmark of the American heartland, but civility. These days, civility in politics sounds like an oxymoron. How many times have we been told that politics is a contact sport? But a sport remains a sport only so long as it involves sportsmanship. Civility is not, needless to say, the absence of conflict. It is the ground rules for conflict. Still less it is, is it the abdication of principle. In the words of Adway Stevenson of Illinois, one of the most civilized men ever to enter the political arena, principled partisanship is the lifeblood of democracy, the operative word being principled. Civility is no guarantee of laws passed or budgets crafted, but a lack of civility makes either task that much harder. Civility narrows differences... Rather than exploiting them, it would rather produce a solution than a scapegoat. It goes without saying no party, president, or region has a monopoly on virtue, but civility, to me, uh, something of an outsider, is as midwestern as Main Street and assembly lines and corn dogs, especially corn dogs. <laughs> If Gerald Ford's name is synonymous with civility, it's because his wife is inseparable from Grand Rapids. It was providential that the man who would be called on to heal a bleeding nation was himself the product of a broken home. Shortly after the birth of their only child in July 1913, Dorothy King left her abusive husband in Omaha and moved to the furniture city on the Grand River. By the end of the year, she had obtained a divorce from Leslie Lynch King, along with an unenforceable court order requiring him to provide child support. Her new home boasted four movie houses, five golf courses, 134 churches, and some of the lowest taxes in the state. A victim who refused to be victimized, Dorothy quickly fell into the rhythms of conservative church-going Grand Rapids. She worked off some of her prodigious energies, collecting clothes and baking bread for needy families. In 1916, she married Gerald Ford Sr., who would give his name to her first son before fathering three additional boys. A simple credo ruled the Ford household, no doubt you've all heard it, tell the truth, work hard, and come to dinner on time. The family breadwinner went by example. When a bank foreclosed on their mortgage, forcing the Fords into a rental home, The elder Ford vowed I'd just have to work harder. The oldest boy, Junie, to his friends did his part by tending the furnace and coal supply, mowing lawns, and washing dishes. Two years after joining Troop 15 at Trinity Methodist Church, Junie Ford earned his Eagle Scout badge. Working a summer job at Fort Mackinac on a picturesque island in the straits between Lakes Huron and Michigan, he discovered a knack for meeting and liking people. Everybody has more good things about them than bad things, he explained to a schoolmate. If you accentuate the good things, you can like him even though he or she has some bad qualities. If you have that attitude, you never hate anybody. His positive outlook was put to a severe test in the spring of 1930. Flipping hamburgers at a local grill, the 16-year-old Ford was interrupted one day by a stranger who announced, I'm Wesley King, your father. Can I take you to lunch? The ensuing meal was an awkward affair, hardly eased by King's gift of $25 to the son he had barely acknowledged. Then he vanished, the proverbial deadbeat dad, leaving in his wake a confused, unhappy youngster who cried himself to sleep that night. It may be coincidental, but about this time, Ford developed a boyhood stutter. He also displayed a ferocious temper, Imperfectly controlled with the help of his mother, Dorothy Ford gave her eldest son a copy of Rudyard Kipling's inspirational poem, If, accompanied by a stern admonition to channel his anger along more constructive lines. Her advice took. For the rest of his life, Gerald Ford demanded more of himself than he did of others. Few guessed at the harsh self-discipline behind his genial exterior. At South High School, deliberately chosen over rivals with less ethnic, racial, and economic diversity, he endured Latin, excelled at history and government. He ran unsuccessfully for president of the South High Student Government on the progressive party ticket.
1: <laughs>
0: it was his last electoral defeat for 45 years. In compensation, classmates designated him most popular in a contest sponsored by a local movie theater. His prize was a train trip to the nation's capital. Politics aside, it was as an athlete that he excelled, winning medals in basketball and track and becoming captain of a football team that carried off the state championship in 1930. At the University of Michigan, he more than held his own academically. But it was on the gridiron that he made a name for himself. Voted outstanding freshman player, Ford went on to be named most valuable on a 1934 team whose punt pass and a prayer offense he later mined for laughs. He found nothing amusing, however, about the treatment accorded his teammate Willis Ward, an African-American and a close friend with whom he roomed on the road. He was angered, Ford was, by the refusal of opponent Georgia Tech to share the field with a black athlete. He considered boycotting the game in protest until Ward convinced him to put the team's interest first. Thus motivated Ford excelled in the only Wolverine victory of the season. In June 1935, he received his BA degree in political science and economics. According to the Michigan yearbook, he was the best student on the football squad. Moreover, he didn't smoke, drink, or swear. Quote, we can't find anything really nasty to say about him, concluded the editors. Neither could the Green Bay Packers or Detroit Lions, each of whom scouted the promising center who had already been invited to play in the Shriners' East-West charity game. In the ensuing bidding war, Ford was offered the princely sum of $2,400 per season with free transportation to and from the football field. He chose, of course, instead to go to Yale. He wanted to be a lawyer, and he wanted to go to Yale. And Yale, in the 1930s, uh, was a place of great ferment, uh, but it was also a place of, um, in some ways, recidivist political views. Um, It was the heart of isolation in America. It was at Yale that America First was founded, and Gerald Ford, uh, being a good Midwesterner, joined America First, Um, along with uh, uh, people like his uh, hometown senator, Arthur Vandenberg. Uh, He believed that the United States uh, had been placed behind two oceans uh, like moats to divinely protect us from contamination with the old world, an old world which had dragged us into one world war already and threatened to repeat history. Well, needless to say, his isolationism did not survive for long. In fact, it didn't survive Pearl Harbor Um, I think of all the things he was proud of, and there were many things justifiably, I think one thing he took great pride in was his career in the Navy um, on a uh, uh, carrier in the South Pacific called the Monterey. Um, He came back from the war having undergone a road to Damascus experience, as indeed had Senator Vandenberg. And I've often thought, I don't know for a fact, I've often thought that Vandenberg, who was a real hero, to him and to his family. I think Vandenberg, in some ways, took the lead in casting off isolationism, and I think Ford um, found it easier, in some ways, to follow in his wake. Um, He came back, and of course, 1948, he decided to enter politics for the best of reasons. Not simply because he was ambitious, although he was ambitious. Uh, He entered politics because he had an idea, uh, which many people thought at that point was an unpopular idea. Uh, the idea being that America could no longer uh, bury its head in the sand. And uh, in the post-war world, we could not repeat the mistake that we had made after World War I, uh, pretending that if we only stayed uninvolved, the rest of the world would leave us alone. Um, Vandenberg had come to that conclusion, Ford came to that conclusion. It prompted him to run against a a Mossback, isolationist, incumbent Republican Uh, who believed the world ended at Terre Haute, um, if indeed it extended beyond the Michigan line. Um, It was widely assumed that it was a suicide mission on Ford's party. Uh, In in the end, he uh, out-hustled, out-campaigned, out-argued his opponent, uh, won the primary by two to one. But of course, it's not only a seat in Congress that he won in 1948, uh, it was uh, Betty Bloomer of Grand Rapids. Uh, Famously, he said to her early in the year that I want to marry you, but I can't tell you when, and I can't tell you why I can't tell you. Uh, And I tell you, the love must have been pretty strong for her to have said, okay. (laughs) Um, Well, with the primary out of the way, uh, it's a Republican seat, and uh, he wanted to take uh, the incumbent by surprise. Uh, He did. Um, So they were married in the middle of October of 1948, According to family legend, um, the future president showed up wearing one black shoe and one brown. I uh, never could quite get a straight answer, but he didn 't deny it. Uh, so I take uh, his non-denial as a non-denial. Um, their honeymoon consisted of a trip to Owasso, uh, and sitting, it gets worse. Um, it was a cold October. It, once in a while, October is cold in West and Michigan. And uh, so they went to Owasso, which was the hometown of Thomas E. Dewey, who, under the best of circumstances, did not oratorically set fire to his audiences. And in this particular instance, it was an outdoor arena, uh, outdoor stadium, like football uh, stadium. Um, by no means filled, um, at night on a cold, blustery. Anyway, the president said 50 years later that Mrs. Ford had never let him forget it. Um, because then, when they came back, they also, of course, went to a Michigan football game. And then they came back to Grand Rapids. And he said, You know, honey, uh, would you mind fixing me a couple sandwiches uh, this evening? Because I really ought to go out and campaign. And I think it was a, a preview, needless to say, of coming attractions. Um, I know in a few days, actually, you'll be hearing from Tom DeFrank, who's written a new book based upon many, many years of, of once private uh, conversations that he had with the president. Uh, I, I'll just give you one, one little teaser. Uh, in that book... Uh, which I've had the privilege of reading, Uh, Tom recounts a 1997 discussion that he had with the president about a friend whose name shall um, go unmentioned. Um, Not a friend in Grand Rapids, needless to say. But anyway, about a friend's adultery. Uh, And DeFrank quoted back to the president a colleague's assessment of Gerald Ford as the only guy he'd ever worked for who had not strayed beyond his marital vows. And this is what President Ford replied. You have to think of the ten bad things that could happen to you from something like that, and the one good thing, and tell yourself the one good thing will get taken care of some other way. (laughs) I would call that sage advice. (laughs) I can think of some White Houses where that probably should have been... embroidered and curved in the mantle. And the, anyway, during his first term in Congress, Ford was named to the House Committee on Public Works. Pretty lowly position, except, guess what? The White House is falling down. Uh, and one day, President Truman invited the committee to come on down, and he gave them a personal tour. Extraordinary. A personal tour of, of the White House, Uh, One corner of the east room ceiling sagged 18 inches. Margaret Truman's piano threatened to come crashing through an upstairs uh, floor at any time. Clearly something had to be done and fast. Uh, President Truman urged the committee to preserve the exterior walls of the old house and rebuild the interior. Putting aside his usual tight-fisted conservatism, Ford took the president at his word. and It was the beginning of a relationship that actually lasted beyond uh, Truman's death and 1972, because in 1976, Bess Truman uh, made no secret of the fact that she voted for Gerald Ford, and um, <laughs> Mrs. Truman uh, stayed very close to the Fords as long as as long as she lived. Remember, I think Ford is at a very kind of formative age as a, as a young congressman. Uh, in Washington and what's he looking at I mean what's his model of the presidency it's not FDR who's left the scene it's Harry Truman this peppery plain spoken not terribly eloquent uh, but terribly sincere uh, and above all authentic man Um, we think of Truman quite understandably as someone who could be very partisan and certainly was in the 1948 campaign but at the very same time uh, he is the father of modern bipartisan foreign policy, along with Arthur Vandenberg of uh, Grand Rapids. Vandenberg famously said to the president, If you want us there for the landing, be sure to include us in the takeoff. Uh, and he, that, uh, those homely words really uh, sparked uh, the Truman Doctrine, aid to Greece and Turkey, NATO, the Berlin Airlift. I mean, that amazingly creative period of American foreign policy. When I think, frankly, we're entitled to feel nostalgic, given the um, the the bitter polarization that affects foreign policy and almost every other policy today. Um, But it was Harry Truman and Arthur Vandenberg, and I think, and here is this young congressman, Gerald Ford, um, who's watching keenly, and I think, um, learning in the process. It's very interesting because from in those days, you know, these, these bourbon-swilling oligarchs, the old bulls, ran Congress. Uh, no one made any pretense that it was a democratic institution with a small d. Um, on the other hand, it ran pretty well uh, under people like Sam Rayburn. Uh, and what happened was there was this very unofficial system where the old bulls kept an eye out for young talent. They were interested in constantly replenishing themselves and both parties very early on decided that General Ford was a promising uh, newcomer he impressed elders by the questions he asked and by the thick volumes of committee testimony that he took home to read in his spare hours in 1954 Democratic Congress um, he's told <laughs> be outside room such and such at 10 o'clock on Wednesday morning that's it uh, he does as he's told and it turns out that he is being asked to join with five senior members who constitute the oversight of the nation's foreign intelligence CIA and, and related agencies. No staff no notes are taken and there was never a leak. Um, and what happened was these old bulls and this young calf um basically uh, locked themselves in with uh, the head of the CIA and other foreign intelligence agencies and fired questions until all of their questions were answered. And it worked. (laughs) It worked pretty well. Um, That's why after the the, the craze of Sputnik 50 years ago, um, when uh, when NASA was established, uh, Gerald Ford was asked to be on the oversight committee of the American Space Program, and that's why there's a statue of a spaceman out there. There's also a statue of a spaceman out there because President Ford didn't want a statue of himself. But in lieu of that, he was very proud of his association with the American Space Program. Uh, that's why in November 1963, remember, before Ford becomes minority leader, you know he's just a Republican congressman. Wendy Johnson calls him the weekend after John F. Kennedy's assassination, and and browbeats him into being on the Warren Commission. Um, I will tell you something that I don't think has ever appeared in print. Not long before he died, um, the president, well, you may know, accepted uh, the John F. Kennedy Library's Profiles and Courage Award. And while he was there, he did an oral history I learned about it later on. And of course, the question was asked about Lee Harvey Oswald and how the Warren Commission did its work and uh, what motives they thought were at work. And President Ford said something quite remarkable, which I don't believe, I don't think he ever said publicly, and I don't really think I'm talking out of school at this point Um, but the theory a theory that was bandied about among the commission members was that Oswald's wife who was a piece of work although not as much as his mother, um, had been riding her husband pretty badly um, for very intimate reasons, Um, namely his alleged impotence. And Lee Harvey Oswald was going to show Marina just how much of a man he was by shooting the President of the United States. It didn't appear in the uh, text of the Warren Commission But it was something widely discussed among the commission members. Anyway, um, by 1973, with Richard Nixon in uh, real trouble um, and Spiro Agnew resigning the vice presidency, uh, the president has to find a replacement, and fast, and it has to be someone who can be confirmed. It can't be John Connolly, who was his first choice. Nelson Rockefeller would split the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan would split the Republican Party from a different direction. It has to be someone that Congress will buy, and there aren't many people at that point. And it's the Democrats, it's Carl Albert and it's Mike Mansfield, who tell the President, if you want someone who can be confirmed, who enjoys our trust, nominate Gary Ford. And that's what the President did. It was a few minutes before 7 o'clock on the evening of October 12th, when the phone rang in the Ford suburban Alexandria home. Dad shouted 16-year-old Susan Ford, the White House is colleague. There was not much time to ponder the presidential offer. This, by the way, was the first Mrs. Ford had heard. They had less than two hours to dress and get themselves over to the East Room of the White House for a nationally televised announcement uh, concerning uh, the Vice Presidency. Far more revealing than anything he said that night in the East Room was what the Vice President Designate did the next day, away from the cameras. And you all—you have to remember—Richard Nixon was made for television. I mean, this this ongoing part Shakespeare, part soap opera, uh, culminating in the, the image that we will always <laughs> always remember uh, on August ninth, nineteen seventy four. He he from Checkers to the Frost interviews, to his funeral. Richard Nixon was was made for television. Um, Gerald Ford wasn't. Gerald Ford's best moments invariably came off camera, and, and this is one of them. The day after he is uh, nominated to be Vice President of the United States, without fanfare or entourage, he flew home to Cedar Springs, Michigan, the self-professed red flannel manufacturing capital of the world, to march in the annual Red Flannel Day Parade. (laughs) It was a telling gesture. Wherever he might be headed, Ford had no intention of forgetting where he came from. I once asked him, because we've all seen the images on August 9th, it's a curious thing. Stop and think. Whenever another anniversary rolls around, August 8th, August 9th. Have you noticed how the media all say it's the blank anniversary of Nixon's departure? Very rarely do they say it's the blank anniversary of the Ford presidency. Richard Nixon owns those days in our memory Uh, because of the drama, the tragedy, the the Shakespearean nature of what was going on, Um, but also because Gerald Ford wasn't the sort to, uh, to monopolize uh, the media's attention, but I always wondered what happened on the walk back into the White House and the president the president to be said exactly the right thing, he knew Mrs. Ford was not happy about what was happening, they had just walked out to the helicopter Pat Nixon said Oh, look, Betty, a red carpet. You'll get so sick of red carpets. And um, they kissed, and what could they say? Um, But Mrs. Ford was really in turmoil. This had all happened too fast. And maybe she was naive, but like the rest of the Ford family, she really believed up until the very last moment that this wasn't going to happen. So, anyway... Gerald Ford understood that before he could even hope to rally the country, reassure the country, he had to begin by reassuring his wife. And if you look at their images, as they walk back into the White House, the president leans over in her ear and whispers, we can do it. Perfect. If his words that day were pitch perfect, his instincts remained Grand Rapids modest Only the strenuous objections of its author, uh, Robert Hartman, dissuaded the new president from excising the most memorable line of his eight-minute inaugural address and thereby diluting the contrast between himself and his disgraced predecessor. Our long national nightmare is over remained in the text. Ford wanted to cut it out. He thought it was a little rough on Nixon. Trifling in itself, the incident points up a generosity of spirit which could easily be taken for naivete. It hints at well at the congressional mindset wherein the art of persuasion involves dozens instead of millions and workhorses thrive outside the spotlight while show horses play to the crowd. The most successful presidents, do you think Jackson, Lincoln, the Roosevelts, Truman, Reagan, they're historical stage managers narrators of their own morality play in which they battle forces of greed social injustice or foreign menace they are brilliant self-dramatizers Gerald Ford would never be that kind of president nor is Oliver Stone ever likely to make a movie about this un-Nixon whom journalist David Broder labeled the least neurotic president I've ever known (laughs) equally grounded was the Ford family as demonstrated in another exchange that occurred out of sight of the ubiquitous cameras banked outside their Alexandria home on the night of August 9th. They're in the kitchen, and Mrs. Ford is slaving over a pan of lasagna. And she says, Jerry, there's something wrong here. I'm still cooking, and you're president of the United States. (laughs) It's it's even now hard to conceive of what an acceleration of history took place really just in a few days uh, in August of 1974. Remember, this is a man who's had very little preparation for what is about to uh, descend on him Um, and no transition. He could not appear to believe for a moment that he might be president, let alone be preparing to be president, because, of course, that was politically out of the question. Um, One of the first people who was hired uh, around the White House was a man named Don Penny. This book that uh, that David Kennelly and I have collaborated on that's about to be published uh, features a number of new interviews um, with people, um, and, in fact, uh, extensive interviews with President Ford. And one of the best is uh, is Don Penny, who was an old writer for Steve Allen, who came in to kind of punch up the president's speeches and and teach him kind of how to, you know, how to work the television camera. Uh, His first advice was, you have to be Fred Astaire in this job. You have to start learning how to tap dance. Well, forget Fred Astaire. Six weeks into the job, Ford was dancing as fast as he could. Late in September, the president interrupted a White House summit on the economy to reveal his wife's successful breast cancer surgery. A new cabinet had to be recruited, including the likes of Ed Weavey, Carla Hills, Frank Zerb, Bill Ussery, and William Coleman, the latter the first African-American cabinet officer to serve a Republican president. An innovative economic policy board was established to help guide the administration in its two-front war on inflation and unemployment. The month before Gerald Ford became president, one month, July 1974, guess what the inflation rate was? For the month, 3.7%. Everything seemed urgent. There was energy policy to devise and sell to Congress and the country, trips to Japan and China, the heartbreak of America's final days in Vietnam and the recoil of the Mayaguez incident in neighboring Cambodia, delicate talks over arms control and increased immigration of Soviet Jews, the Apollo-Soyuz joint space mission, and the perennial headache of the Middle East. The Fords hosted no fewer than 33 state visits, many linked to the nation's bicentennial celebration. Add the tumultuous contest for the 1976 Republican presidential nomination, a crisis over court-ordered school busing in Boston, the uproar over a botched campaign to fight swine flu, IRAs and ATMs and Title IX, a 10-day European tour encouraging Democratic forces in several Iron Curtain satellites, a pair of assassination attempts and the running battle between congressional spenders and a veto-wielding executive. Suddenly, the Ford years can be seen for what they were, a time of immense and accelerating change as America struggled to redefine its post-Vietnam mission and to regain a sense of institutional trust all but wrecked by the war and Watergate. Passengers on board Air Force One uh, noted almost immediately that the door to the President's quarters remained open, in stark contrast to his predecessor's love of privacy. In office, barely 10 days, Ford opened another door, this time to Vietnam era draft evaders who were willing to perform two years of alternative service and pledge allegiance to the country whose military uniform they had spurned. The only thing bolder than Ford's initiative was his choice of audience before which to introduce this. You know, he could have gone to the press room and announced it, Uh, he could have found a liberal organization uh, where he would have been cheered, but no, what does he do? He goes to the annual convention of the veterans of foreign wars meeting in Chicago. Before going on stage, he said at least he wouldn't have to worry about being interrupted too often by applause. <laughs> and that was prophetic. <laughs> about, about the same time, Ford welcomed Senator George McGovern to a White House stag dinner. McGovern, a staunch liberal and passionate critic of the Vietnam War, was frankly astonished. He said as much in reminding the president that his vocal opposition to their policies had guaranteed that neither Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon would ever ask him to dinner. I know, George, said Ford. That's why I invited you. (laughs) McGovern would uh, return the favor in 1976 by voting for Gerald Ford. By 1974, it was rare to hear a president laugh. Rarer still to hear one laugh at himself. So it was doubly refreshing when the new president joked about his unlikely ascent to the nation's highest office by claiming that even the Marine band was a little bit confused. According to Ford, they don't know whether to play Hail to the Chief or You've Come a Long Way, baby. <laughs> Another quote from Don Penny No one, I can't think of a president in modern times. To which anyone could say this. Mr. President, said Penny, who was trying to coach Ford on his speaking style, you have the ability to turn a really great joke into a statement. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else would have kicked him out of the Oval Office. That Penny could speak such truth to power said more about his employer's character than any flight of manufactured eloquence. Not content to crack wise about Ford's oratorical skills, Penny also teased the president about his clothes, which he referred to as those 1948 Truman suits that he'd inherited and those electric blue leisure suits made out of, you know, shrapnel. (laughs) With Betty Ford's tacit support, Penny made an attempt to improve the presidential wardrobe and invited a Georgetown tailor We'll call him Saul, for present purposes, to come to the White House. Together with his wife, Saul had survived the hell of Auschwitz. And he was terrified by the prospect of beating, let alone dressing, the President of the United States. Plied with reassurances, that weekend the Taylor reported to the White House just as Gerald Ford sat down to watch a college football game. <laughs> It wasn't easy, but Penny somehow pried Ford away from the game. Minutes passed. From an adjoining room, Penny heard the low murmur of conversation, followed by a muffled sob. Peeking in, he was surprised to observe the president putting one hand on the tailor's shoulder before the two men embraced. What happened? Penny asked Saul afterward. Oh, I was fixing the president's pants. And he said to me, Donald told me you'd been in the camps and that you're proud to be an American. Saul, maybe it hasn't dawned on you yet, but you're probably one of the best Americans. How Midwestern? Midwesterners are allergic to grandiosity in any form. Uh, At one hotel, the president was put up in something called the Emperor's Suite, Uh, (laughs) he was not comfortable. Uh, but he was delighted when a staffer uh, put up a cardboard sign on the front door that read, Jerry Ford's Room. <laughs> when a White House steward hastened to wipe a floor soiled by the family's golden retriever, Liberty, the president waved him away. No man should have to clean up after another man's dog, he said, before tending to the mess himself. Yet that was exactly the role in which history had cast Gerald Ford. Nixon in exile haunted Washington like Banquo's ghost. At his first White House press conference on August 28th, Ford was besieged with questions about the former president, the custody of his papers and tapes, and his chances to avoid legal prosecution. The feeding frenzy confirmed a suspicion fast hardening into certainty that yesterday's man threatened to swamp the Ford presidency before it ever left the dock. Privately, Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski told the White House that it could take up to two years before Nixon saw the inside of a courtroom, that is, assuming he could ever get a fair trial. Discussion of a possible presidential pardon led to acrimonious discussions in the Oval Office. Ford testily rejected warnings of the political consequences. Damn it, he barked at one point, I don't need the polls to tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Too many decisions have been made in that room based on politics, he grumbled. This did not prevent historians or journalists then or later from debating his motives and methods. I once spent a memorable evening in a Grand Rapids hotel suite, wargaming the pardon with the man who issued it. I went in something of an agnostic, uh, believing like I think most people have come to believe that it was a necessary thing to do, even courageous, but believing also that there had to have been a more adroit, deft way of preparing the country Um, and I came away from three hours of vigorous discussion uh, persuaded that in the poisonous atmosphere of post Nixon Washington there simply was no practical means by which to prepare Americans for such a bombshell. The very first trial balloon would have been shot from the sky before it cleared the trees Time-honored weeks designed to test the waters would have touched off tsunamis of indignation, hostility, and suspicions about a deal. It was characteristic that when faced with the most critical decision of his young presidency, Ford did not take a poll. He said a prayer. The streets around the White House were deserted when early on Sunday morning, September 8, he slipped across Lafayette Square to take communion at St. John's Church. Returning to the Oval Office, he affixed his signature to the document immunizing his predecessor from prosecution for any Watergate-related offense. He also accepted the resignation of his White House Press Secretary, Gerald Terhorst. He felt I had not consulted with him, Ford said later, told him about my decision. I said that if I had told him and the press had asked him questions about it, he either had to tell them in advance which I didn't want done, or tell a lie. It's a revealing passage. The Nixon pardon unleashed a storm of anger, reminiscent of the calls for impeachment touched off by Harry Truman's decision to fire Douglas MacArthur a quarter century earlier. I fired MacArthur because he wouldn't respect the authority of the president, said Truman. I didn't fire him because he was a dumb son of a bitch. (laughs) Although he was. (laughs) Plainly, however, whatever his motive and expectations, Ford misjudged the reaction of the country. Uh, He was taken aback by the blowtorch of anger. Uh, that his action set off. Tip O'Neill, his old friend in the House, said that it would cost Ford the 1976 election. A prediction that seemed borne out the very next day, the president of, food of Pittsburgh to address a conference on urban transportation. Outside the hall, he was greeted by demonstrators shouting, jail, Ford. Overnight, his approval rating dropped a record 22 points, from 71% to 49%. Of course, a month later, he went and testified Uh, Before Congress, the first president, in fact, since George Washington, to do so. Uh, He did it voluntarily and by most accounts very successfully. Um, But it was, again, a a testament to the um, um, intensity of emotions that surrounded Richard Nixon. And in some ways, it almost explained why you had to lance the boil. Otherwise, play the game of what if. What if they hadn't been a pardon? What if the legal process had ground away and the next two, three, four years were monopolized by Richard Nixon's legal travails and a trial and a possible conviction and appeals? Uh, what would that have done to the country? Uh, I leave it to you. Ford spoke prematurely when he declared America's long national nightmare to be at an end. For the spring of 1975 brought the shattering climax of U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia and with it unforgettable scenes of heartache and humiliation. Responding to a frantic request for help from South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thu, Ford dispatched Army Chief of Staff General Frederick Wayland to Saigon. He did not, however, go alone. And this is classic Ford. The President also sent White House photographer David Kennerly, an iconoclast, and virtual member of the family, who, on observing his employer's ungraceful tumble down some rain-slicked steps while disembarking from Air Force One, had greeted the leader of the free world with the words, Nice of you to drop in. And it was equally typical of Ford when all of his advisors, of course, thinking uh, to you know, curry favor, were denouncing the photographers for their act of, let's say, majeste in taking his picture. And Ford said, well, you know, of course they took my picture. If they hadn't, they would have lost their jobs. Uh, he was the least offended uh, by the whole incident. If Ford wanted a Vietnamese report with the bark off that Kennerly was the man to give it to him, he got precisely what he asked for. Cambodia is gone. Kennedy told the president on his return and I don't care what anyone says, they are bullshitting you if they say that Vietnam has got more than three or four weeks left. His words were blunt enough but it was Kennedy's pictures that most eloquently portrayed the tragedy engulfing South Vietnam and Cambodia. Some staff members even complained when these depressing images were hung in the corridors of the West Wing. Leave them up, Ford ordered. Everyone should know what is going on over there. On April 1st, Cambodia fell to the Khmer Rouge communists. Options for Vietnam were running out, as was congressional support for anything but immediate and total U.S. evacuation. And so began the most painful chapter in recent American military history, culminating in desperate attempts at escape by South Vietnamese, who were quite justifiably terrified of communist reprisals. When shelling sealed off nearby Tan Nhut airfield, thousands stormed the American embassy in Saigon for two days, beginning on April 28th, Air Force and Marine pilots ferried over 7,000 Americans and Vietnamese from the roof of the embassy up that staircase on the second floor of this museum to the safety of waiting aircraft carriers in the Coral Sea. It was an ironic measure of his success in draining the poisons released by Vietnam and Watergate, that by the summer of 1975, there were some journalists who had coined the slogan, Stay Bored with Ford. (laughs) All that changed abruptly in the second week of September when Squeaky Forum a member of the notorious Charles Manson family, tried to assassinate the visiting president on the grounds of the California state capitol in Sacramento. Ford, characteristically, went ahead with his schedule as if nothing had happened. He paid a neighborly call on the state's Democratic governor, Jerry Brown, in the course of which he never mentioned his near-death experience. As he put it afterward, I didn't think it was appropriate for me to say, on the way to see you, governor, a lady tried to shoot me. (laughs) How Midwestern. The man who insisted he had no enemies was discovering the brutal reality of the modern presidency. Two weeks after his encounter with Squeaky Fromm, history repeated itself. While leaving a San Francisco hotel, Ford paused to wave to onlookers across the street in Union Square. The crack of gunfire resounded. This time his assailant was Sarah Jane Moore, a 45-year-old woman with ties to Bay Area radical groups. An alert bystander deflected the weapon causing the bullet to miss its target by several feet. Press Secretary Ron Nesson declared, we're never coming back to California again. (laughs) Back in Washington, Betty Ford, the most outspoken White House feminist since Eleanor Roosevelt, pleaded with her children to look happy when their father appeared. Already bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders, he mustn't know how worried they were about his safety. Smiles mingled with tears as the president entered the room, looked at his wife, and declared, Betty, those dang women are lousy shots. (laughs) In the Midwest, pragmatism is a virtue, and the search for common ground is seen as a sign of strength, not weakness. In the words of the late, great Everett Dirksen of Illinois, I am a man of fixed and unbending principles, and one of my principles is flexibility. (laughs) The other half of Capitol Hill's long-running Ev and Jerry show felt much the same. Don Penny quoted the president as saying one day, Don, it's okay for you to be an advocate, but you cannot be a zealot. (laughs) There was nothing casual about that remark. After all, Gerald Ford and his generation had paid a high price for a world full of zealots. More than once I heard him say that it was sometimes necessary to question a man's ideas and even his methods, but rarely his motives and never his patriotism. In Congress, he'd learned that there was no such thing as an enemy, just an opponent on this roll call who might be with you on the next. Over time, Ford learned, sometimes painfully, that the ways of Capitol Hill were were not easily transferable to the presidency. In the Midwest, a man is as good as his word, and a handshake, as binding as a contract. That's how Ford had operated in the House. That's how he tried to operate in the White House. Three times, the president appealed to his former colleagues in Congress to deregulate new supplies of natural gas. For good measure, he urged them to establish a single ad hoc committee to review his 167-page energy package Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield said the idea was impractical Speaker Albert said he could do nothing quote to destroy committee jurisdiction were he even to attempt such a thing the speaker added it would cause quote horrendous internal problems for Congress eventually the White House and Congressional leaders narrowed the differences a handshake deal was struck to phase in decontrol over a period of 30 months The deal lasted all of a week. Unfortunately, the Democratic leadership reported back to the president they could not deliver their membership. All this was symptomatic of post-Watergate Washington, wherein authority was flouted as hierarchies crumbled and visibility above all the mass legitimacy bestowed by television was pursued as the holy grail of career advancement. Ford did not hesitate to disagree with his former colleagues where fundamental principles were at stake and they certainly were not bashful about returning his volley. Resolved to cut spending, he vetoed no fewer than 66 bills. When's the last time an American president did that? A White House staffer rubbed his eyes in disbelief as the president's good friend Tip O'Neill, so jovial and confiding in the Oval Office, turned harshly critical in front of reporters on the North Lawn of the White House. He's saying terrible things, the young man reported to his boss, who never looked up from his desk or removed the pipe on which he was contentedly puffing. Dawn, that's politics. (laughs) Gerald Ford was a better president than candidate for president. His campaign song in 1976 drilled, I'm feeling good about America and if its message was by no means universally applicable, even adversaries conceded the profound contrast between the nation's mood in August 1974 and the bicentennial summer of 1976. His campaign for the Republican nomination stabilized after a string of primary losses in the South and West. Still, Ford courted every vote as if his political life depended on it, as indeed it did. Dick Cheney, who is one of the people who have been interviewed for the book and tells the following story, so blame him, not me. (laughs) Dick Cheney, who had succeeded Don Rumsfeld as chief of staff, was understandably alarmed when Secret Service agents shot an intruder who had somehow managed to scale the White House fence. His look of shock dissolved in laughter as an agent, well aware of the seesaw battle, then raging for the soul of the GOP, mournfully remarked, If that was an uncommitted delegate we just shot, we're in deep shit. (laughs) It wasn't, and they weren't. When Queen Elizabeth II graced a White House dinner that July as part of the nation's bicentennial festivities, it is probably just as well that Her Majesty did not see the guest list in advance, for it was bloated with uncommitted Republican delegates and their spouses. Little about that year's contest followed a predictable script. The Ford-Carter match was the first conducted under post-Watergate public financing rules and to feature televised debates between an incumbent and his challenger. Perhaps the most memorable moment of those three encounters came in San Francisco on October 6th when Ford famously denied Soviet domination of Poland and other members of the Warsaw Pact. Now I should have said The Soviet Union does not dominate the Polish spirit, Ford acknowledged long afterward. I should have acknowledged that the Soviet Union had three or four divisions in Poland and therefore militarily dominated Poland. In fact, and this has always been forgotten, in fact, the incumbent couched his remarks within a larger defense of the controversial Helsinki Accords. He specifically referred to the people of Yugoslavia, Romania, and Poland, three Eastern Bloc nations he had visited as president and whose warm welcome had convinced him of their pending liberation. When we redid the museum, and if you know upstairs, there's a television screen that plays the Polish gaffe over and over again. One, I don't think Lyndon Johnson would have allowed that in his, in his museum, um, but two, when the president came through and saw it, he chuckled, and, uh, and we reminded him that he wasn't wrong, he was just about 13 years ahead of his time. <laughs> anyway, all of that was forgotten in the media storm that ensued. Precious momentum was squandered as the president, who could be indeed uh, a stubborn Dutchman, dug in his heels for four days before recanting. He quickly regained his stride and ended the home stretch, closing the greatest gap in modern polling. Almost. The combined effect of Watergate, the Nixon pardon, the GOP split, plus Carter's appeal as a morally driven outsider proved too much to overcome. For all that, Gerald Ford's loss in the Electoral College was the narrowest since 1916, cushioned by victories in such modern-day blue states as California, Oregon, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Michigan. As I said, Miss Truman voted for Ford, as did George McGovern, and three weeks after he acknowledged that, uh, he learned from Mrs. McGovern that she had voted uh, for Ford as well. Rising above his disappointment, the president promised the smoothest transition in history. When Jimmy Carter visited the Oval Office for the first time, um, Ford was hurting. And there's, there's no doubt Ford was was depressed. Not clinically, but, you know, if you would be too. Um, he, he extended his hand. He said, Governor Carter, I haven't had a chance to you know, personally congratulate you yet. And they sat down and there began, in fact, the smoothest transition in American political history. On his last night in the White House, he welcomed Nelson Rockefeller and his family as overnight guests. Days before, the outgoing president had bid farewell to Washington with a benediction that said as much about Gerald Ford's character as about his soul. I once asked you for your prayers, he remarked, and now I give you mine. May God guide this wonderful country its people and those they have chosen to lead them. May our third century be illuminated by liberty and blessed with brotherhood so that we and all who come after us may be the humble servants of thy peace. The same words would be repeated on a January afternoon 30 years later at Grace Episcopal Church. Rosalind Carter wept quietly as her husband eulogized his one-time adversary and longtime friend. Midwestern. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Now I know questions, comments, observations. Constructive criticisms? Yes. You mentioned
1: Cedar Springs and the Red Planet. My mom was good friends with the Clipper Girls who read the newspaper up there Were
0: early scores of Congress before. And I was just curious if you had any stories or reflections because I heard many from the family. Boy, I, I tell you, I don't, but you do. And it's important for us to get your stories. I'm serious, to get your stories recorded. There are undoubtedly people in this room who have pieces of the Ford story and I mean we're actually talking about the possibility of, of organizing a systematic oral history effort before it's too late because there are lots of people in and around West Michigan uh, who, who could contribute uh, pieces of history that would otherwise be lost in time so I hope you will take the initiative to get in touch with Jim Kratzis uh, who runs this place And share your stories, but thank you very much. Yeah.
1: I wonder if you would uh, comment, uh, particularly on Ford's
2: extensive use of the veto compared with President Bush's uh, almost pride in not vetoing, but at the same time announcing selective non-enforcement of some of the
1: provisions of the Bill
0: C. Well, you know, Ford was. He wasn't frugal, he was cheap. I mean, he was, I mean, he elevated cheapness to the level of principle, don't get me wrong. He was a fiscal conservative. Uh, You know, he wasn't a supply sider. He didn't think you could get something for nothing. He thought if he wanted a program, then fine, to pay for it. He didn't think that it was right to mortgage the future of our children or our grandchildren. Uh, By the way, something Dwight Eisenhower said in his famous Farewell Address. I mean, he was passionate about restraining the growth of government and government spending and taxes and he was willing to because he had no other weapons. You know, he had a a Congress that was overwhelmingly democratic after the 1974 election. And... um, So, you know, he was willing to expend whatever political capital he had and confront his old buddies on Capitol Hill. One of the great ironies of the Ford presidency is, here's this man, you know, very few people go direct, well, you know, one person's gone directly from the House, you know? Real trivia, Garfield, exactly. Um, and guess what? <laughs> they never tried that again. Um, <laughs> you know, Warren Harding and John Kennedy are the only people who have gone directly from the Senate. But one of the great ironies is Gerald Ford, who was a child of the Congress, who, uh, who loved Capitol Hill, who always regarded the House as his real home in Washington. There's no doubt about that and who cherished his friendships. Um, The remarkable thing is he found himself in a position where for two and a half years, he was called upon in his estimation to defend the prerogatives of the executive branch, which were dissolving like sugar in water in the wake of Richard Nixon and Watergate. And part of it was in terms of domestic spending and part of it obviously was in terms of foreign policy. And indeed, without getting too topical, um, you can draw a direct line between Dick Cheney who is the chief of staff, the youngest chief of staff in American history who saw all this going on and who in my opinion came to, to nurture a lifelong passionate belief that the presidency was somehow in danger of being permanently eroded and well we all know how that turned out um, so no one's done it since you know, Jerry Ford <laughs> paid a price for bucking convention. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the 1975 State of the Union address. He got up and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, the State of the Union is not good. No one's ever tried that uh, since uh, since that either. Yeah. Uh, has President Ford ever expressed a particular reaction to
2: the Watergate that
1: of-
0: I think he was genuinely shocked at the language I think he was genuinely shocked and you can you, you could call him naive that Richard Nixon lied to him yeah
2: what about President Ford's response uh, his feelings about Ronald Reagan
1: especially after August of 1976?
0: Well, I think, I think it's, it's... In some ways, it's complicated. In some ways, it's very simple. Um, and I don't want to prejudice you. Uh, when you read Tom DeFrank's book, there's a good deal there about this. And it's, Tom's a good friend, and Tom loved the president. And um, you can decide for yourself. Um, my view is that I think Tom exaggerates. The resentment that Ford felt. Um, because I had a few conversations, um, and Gerald Ford just wasn't the kind of guy to waste time holding a grudge. Now, if you asked him, did Ronald Reagan campaign for you in the fall of 1976 as much as he might have, you know, he was going to say hell no. Um, but you know, if you ask, certain questions, you know, you can push the button and you know what kind of response you're going to get. Uh, and, and 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 to be fair to Tom, he makes it crystal clear that the moment that uh, the president and Mrs. Ford learned about President Reagan's uh, diagnosis of Alzheimer's, uh, they, they, they were crushed. They, he said it was one of the saddest days of his life. And whatever, you know, latent, you know, lingering resentment may have existed you know, disappeared. Um, he visited President Reagan a couple times in his office at Century City, um, and the first time they had a great conversation. The second time was, you know, further along in the course of the disease, and he he, he really wasn't sure. That, he didn't recognize him at first, and then he sort of gently coaxed him along, and you know, brought up a few names from the past and joint experiences, and and you know, he he thought he thought he did. He did recognize him, but it was it was it was it was a wrenching experience for Ford to go through. And I know their hearts went out to Mrs. Reagan. I mean, throughout that period, and at the time of the president's death. Yeah. Uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld
2: were important in the Ford administration, and they're important in the president administration. And Ford had an opportunity to observe them uh, in the president administration. Did he ever say anything
0: about that or his attitudes toward them changed? Yeah, You know, it's funny. I'm very old-fashioned in some ways. Um, I actually think there were private conversations that are private conversations. Uh, and I don't want you to read anything into that. I will tell you this. Um, his personal affection for both men never wavered. Um, really, to the end of his life. He... He, uh, he was really an admirer of both men and very grateful. And they were, it must be said, uh, no reason for you to know, uh, but they were, I mean, I, I saw Dick Cheney at an event about two weeks after the funeral. Um, and I said, you know, Mr. Vice President, first of all, I apologize because I'd only just then seen a tape of the uh, service at Grace. And I realized then, uh, which I didn't at the time, you're in a fog when you're doing things like that that as I, as I came down, he actually he said something to me and um, tried to speak to me, and I just walked by. But I, I, I apologized. I said, you know, I, I just want to say to you, um, this is a town you know better than anyone. This is a town where people have very short memories, you know, and gratitude um, uh, doesn't last very long. And I've always been struck over all of these years by, by how, how much you've gone out of your way, You're publicly and in many many ways that the public would never know privately, to support the, the President Ford to enhance his legacy, you know to, to be there and, you know and he didn't have to do any of that. So on that personal level, I can tell you the friendship never never wavered. Uh, it has, I mean I'm not telling you anything you haven't read in the press. Uh, there were stories that the president was um, perplexed. Uh, by the Iraq war and in particular by the rationales that were cited originally uh, for going to war and then in particular uh, the whole issue of weapons of mass destruction Um, and it's not a secret that he thought that that was not an acceptable rationale Uh, although that didn't mean that he disagreed with other rationales um, but Gerald Ford was a conservative, small c, conservative. And that meant, in my opinion, sort of a West Michigan conservative, someone who has a healthy skepticism about remaking the world overnight, about bringing perfection and ushering a utopia. That's for other people, you know? That's not for healthy skepticism, not cynicism, because he was perfectly willing to, uh, throughout his career to employ government for example in a number of ways uh, to try to right injustice um, and uh, and provide economic opportunity but I think particularly when it came to foreign policy maybe particularly because he had fought in World War II. I think a president every president including the, the current president um, if they lie awake at night about worrying about anything it's about sending young men and women into battle. And I think Ford, coming out of the Vietnam War, was even more cautious. And I think that experience branded him for life. He had seen what had happened when America went into a war for reasons that may or may not, frankly, uh, have been true. And what happened when the government lost its credibility and ultimately its moral authority without which there can be no authority. And he had been there at the end and the humiliation of sitting in the Oval Office watching, as he said, the United States get kicked out of Southeast Asia. And I think for those reasons, if for none others, uh, he would look very, very carefully before um, committing U.S. forces in a, in, a, in a cause such as Iraq. He was, by the way, very supportive of the first Gulf War. Totally supportive. And, you know, it must be said, the Bushes were wonderful. Um, President Mrs. Bush, the current President Mrs. Bush, uh, celebrated the President's 90th birthday with a dinner at the White House, which they have said was one of the highlights of their eight years there. And um, I also know. I think for a lot of people, the last time they saw President Ford in public uh, was in April of the year uh, 2006. Uh, President Bush was out in Southern California, and he called up the office and said, "Would it be okay if I came by for a visit?" And um, Mrs. Ford said, "That'd be wonderful. Be the you know best best thing you know best tonic, best medicine." And he came without a big entourage, and he spent an hour uh, with the Fords, and and uh, the president was on cloud nine. Um, and so, you know, there've been a lot of acts. There's a long-standing relationship between the Bush family and the Fords, and it was no accident that two of the four eulogists at the National Cathedral were named Bush. Yeah. Talk
1: about uh, the enduring friendship of. Uh, Carter
0: and Ford, uh, yeah, well, it's certainly, uh, you know, no one would have predicted it listening to the 76 campaign, you know, and what they said about each other. There's a wonderful story a journalist said um, to President Ford. Mr. President, um, I've noticed that in your speeches, you know, you know over the last several days, um, twice you've referred to your predecessor once you referred to Lyndon Johnson's successor. He said, are you trying purposefully to avoid using the name of Richard Nixon? And Ford said, yes.
1: <laughs> Which, needless to
0: say, Jimmy Carter was much less uh, reticent. He kept talking about the Nixon-Ford administration. And, you know, all it's fair to love in war and politics. Um, but I think it's safe to say long before election night they didn't like each other very much Um, and it really began to thaw professionally it thawed even while Carter was in the White House because remember the Panama Canal Treaties like the Camp David Accords both have their roots in the Ford administration Ford basically negotiated a a treaty um, and was prepared to move on it Um, and of course it fell to Jimmy Carter and so Carter asked Ford if he would lobby Republican senators. And Ford said he would, and he did, and uh, may very well have provided the margin of victory for that very important and very controversial uh, and diplomatic breakthrough. Um, the personal relationship, though, really dates to October of 1981, uh, when they went on the uh, trip to the Sadat funeral. And imagine, you know, Nixon, Ford, and Carter or on the plane or as Bob Dole later famously said uh, see no evil hear no evil and evil uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that Bob Dole <laughs> and um, I think it was an awkward as you might imagine an awkward kind of gathering um, however Nixon, after the funeral, didn't return with them. He, he went off on his own itinerary in the Middle East. So Carter and Ford found themselves together on this long trip back. And they began talking and comparing notes. And they found they had a lot in common. And they talked about their families. They talked about presidential libraries. Um, quite frankly, they bitched about the cost of presidential libraries. You know, Ford said raising the money for this thing was the hardest thing he ever did. It was about $9 million dollars. But that was real money, you know, to someone who, you know, uh, in all of his congressional campaigns had never spent very much. uh, And who was, as I just said, uh, a man of ingrained frugality. Um, Carter, likewise, um, you know... uh, it's bad enough you've lost an election. You know you're handed your walking papers. Uh, you go back to Plains, you find out that the peanut warehouse is bankrupt. You know your blind trust is in the red. And oh yes, by the way, you have to raise twenty-five million dollars to build your presidential library. Welcome home. Um, so I think they found they had a lot in common. Now, to be very honest with you, I think they probably found the, the thing they had most in common was Ronald Reagan. Um, needless to say, both of them had, uh, had the experience of running against Reagan, uh, who was a formidable opponent. Um, and I think it is safe to say that Jimmy Carter has probably held a grudge longer than, <laughs> than, than General Ford did. But um, in any event, th- that's really when it began. And I think they actually, I've heard the president say, I mean, I think they agreed to disagree on domestic policy. They realized that they would never, you know, be at one there. But they also agreed to look for areas and ways that they could work together, particularly on foreign policy. So, in fact, on that trip, before they arrived home, they made some news, and they also riled the White House, by saying they thought the United States would have to talk to the PLO. If you were serious about bringing peace to the Middle East, you had to talk to the Palestinians. Um, And... um, they would go on to make news from time to time. They agreed to do conferences at each other's libraries. They did a series of conferences on nuclear arms control, which was something obviously <laughs> important to both of them. Um, Ford agreed to do a program in Atlanta, and vice versa. And that really turned into you know um, almost the you know the Evan Jerry show. Um, and they were, and they and they became quite close. Uh, and I think when you saw President Carter. At the funeral, you saw someone along with Mrs. Carter who was genuinely very affected. Uh, he'd lost a very special friend. And it's, it's, you know, you wish it was a role model. And you, you see some of it with Bush 41 and President Clinton. Um, but you know, so what's so frustrating is why do people have to wait until they're 70 or 75 or 80 and no longer on the ballot? to uh, take on the risk of being civil to your political opponents. One more? Oh, come on, one more.
1: Yes? I I just want to have a comment. Was remarkable and worth learning from. And they thought I was naive. <laughs> Dan, I, I, I
0: know a few of those kind of professors. <laughs> First of all, thank you, Beth. Very, very, very generous of you. But, um,
1: yeah,
0: you know, I just, you know, before we wind up, I mean, very sin- sincerely, um, what happened here in in January, I, I'm sure, will be remembered, obviously, for a very long time by by everyone. Who took part, and I I hope especially by those kids, thousands of kids, you know, who their parents and grandparents brought and waited for hours and hours outside this building, you know, that night. But the other thing is, I have to tell you, since then, because I get around a bit, and um, Grand Rapids made an impression on the rest of America that week. People, people looked at this town. In some cases, maybe discovered this town. And just as there was a whole generation uh, who were introduced to Gerald Ford for the first time and they liked what they saw, perhaps in part by contrast with everything since, but in any event, they liked what they saw. By the same token, people uh, made the acquaintance of Grand Rapids and they liked what they saw. And this, this town just absolutely, uh, you know, he would have been so proud because it simply confirmed everything he knew about Grand Rapids, and it's why at the end of my eulogy, I just about got through the comment uh, that near the end of his life he said that when he had trouble sleeping at night he went back in memory to Grand Rapids and I thought that was so revealing Um, and you only have to spend a little bit of time in the city to know why anyway, thank you very much
2: say this and give you this assurance, and I think I can speak for Gleaves Whitney and Ralph Hollenstein or the Hellenstein Center, and I can speak for the museum and the foundation. Uh, Richard, this is home for you, and you are always welcome here, and we will have you back. Now, if you haven't had enough, if you haven't had enough of Richard Norton Smith this week, Friday night on C-SPAN, at 8 8 p.m. and repeated at 11, I believe, Richard, he will be co-hosting the continuing series on presidential libraries. And guess which one is Friday night? (laughs) He will be co-hosting. It will actually be a live show, and and the material that is going to be presented will be presented through the library, and hopefully Elaine Didier will feel better by that time because she'll be one of the people on the other end. So at 8 o'clock on C-SPAN. You can see more of Richard Norton Smith live. Thank you all very much.